Thank you for listening to this teaching from Kingdom Discipleship. In Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul declared, quote, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, or righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Are you trying to approach God today in your own good works and your own righteousness? Or have you received the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith? Let's open our Bible now to Romans chapter 9, that we might gain an understanding of this essential principle of pursuing God by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Well, good morning. Welcome to a, a new teaching this morning, and uh, it's a it's a Sunday morning here in Texas, and uh, it's Father's Day today. Um, thank you, Lord Jesus. We uh, we we have a, a library. We try to get four, five, six teachings ahead in case I'm I'm out of town or I'm indisposed or for whatever reason, you know, we can't uh, you know we can't record. You know, we try to be five, six teachings ahead. So it's Father's Day here in Texas today. It's June 18th. And, uh, you know, this teaching won't, you know, won't go live. It won't be available to y'all until, uh, I don't know, two and a half, three weeks. Um, but uh, happy Father's Day. It's a good day. I've, uh, I've prayed several times today and, uh, you know, trying to, to really meditate and think about the goodness of our heavenly father and to think about what it means to be his son or daughter, right? To think about what it means that if you're in Jesus Christ today, if you are a, a genuine true Christian, which is to say that, that, that you understand that you are in a hopeless, helpless, desperate and sinful state. And that without Jesus Christ, only in eternity in hell awaits. And then out of that place, you call out to Jesus, you receive him as your Lord and Savior, you place your trust, your full trust, your confidence, your reliance, your hope in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul, deliverance from the wrath of God and eternal hell. Um, if you're in that place today, clinging to Jesus alone for your salvation, then God the Father is your heavenly Father. And so, of course, we do want to honor our our fathers today, right? Uh, the Ten Commandments say, honor your father and mother, which is the, the first commandment with a promise, right? So we, we ought to show honor to our parents, okay? Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean we necessarily agree with them. If our parents happen to, to have a position that they're firm on that's not biblical, we still honor them. We still love them. We should always be respectful, even when they're not respectful, Um Something I haven't often done well. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Not necessarily with my parents, but in general, uh, you know, just uh, you know, learning to handle persecution and injustice and disrespect. It's it's, uh, it's hard, and to handle it in a manner that's loving and meek, without you know, returning frustration and anger is a you know, it's it's work. But we do want to honor our our father and mother, and so. Hopefully you honored your father and mother on Father's Day and, uh, and you know, and, and in our spiritual fathers and mothers. We, we do want to, we certainly want to honor them as well. But above all, above all, right, May, 
we want to consider our heavenly father and he is a good, good father. He is a loving father. And as his children, he deserves for us to live our lives as his children in a Christ-centered way, in a loving way, in a way that pleases him. That's, that's what he will like, so to speak, for Father's Day. Our Father wants us to be more and more like Jesus. God the Father, right? We talked about it in, uh, in Romans 8, right? Verse 29, that we're to be conformed <clears throat> to the image of Jesus. Our Heavenly Father's desire, what pleases him is when we live our lives little bit by little bit, more and more, increasingly more, to be like Jesus God the Son in every manner and in every way. And if we're Christians, the Holy Spirit lives in us. And that is the main function of the Holy Spirit is to is that for the rest of our lives, God the Holy Spirit is leading us and pointing us to Jesus, that we might know Jesus more deeply, more intimately, that we might know his love and that we might love him more and more and more and more. So again, Happy Father's Day um, to all the fathers out there. And Father, we do say happy Father's Day to you. Father, we love you today. We worship you. We thank you and we praise you. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, just for the incomprehensible grace and mercy and favor and love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we ask you to help us to live our lives as your children in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us, Father, to be obedient children. And I ask you to forgive us, Father. Forgive me, or so often I can be a selfish and obstinate, even petulant, disobedient child. Father, I thank you that there is no shame or condemnation. I thank you that you do love us, Father, even when we make mistakes. But at the same time, Father, I do ask you to help us, one and all, to more and more, as Jesus said, love you, with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Holy Spirit, we ask you to lead us and guide us now as we open your word. Give us eyes that see, ears that hear, hearts to understand. Jesus, we worship you and thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Okay, it's a good Father's Day. All right, Lord willing, today we're going to finish Romans 9. This chapter again, as I've said before, is... Uh, is perhaps the most difficult chapter in the Bible to deal with it. And we and we do need to deal with it. It is it is hard teaching. And we can't we can't twist the scripture as I've said to make it fit what we want to believe. We want to do our best to take the scripture on its face. The vast majority of scripture is plain. But then there are there are parts of scripture that are hard to understand and you know, in his sovereignty, in his wisdom, our Heavenly Father has made this doctrine of predestination, this doctrine of election. And, you know, in his own counsel, for some reason, he's made this difficult to understand. And so we've spoken about this doctrine throughout this chapter. Hopefully you have a better concept now that the, the doctrine of election is a fact. Predestination is a fact. All of us have been, all of us who are Christians have actually been predestined before the world was created, chosen by God our Father before the world was created, elect by him even before the world was created, let alone before we were created, um, for salvation. 
what we've discussed over and over are the different views on what was the basis of that. And we came to, to two views. We came to a view called a, a provisionist view. That means God has made provision in Jesus Christ for all humanity and has given common grace to all humanity to make a decision to either accept Christ or reject Christ. And all those who he knew would accept Christ are the ones he chose, elected, and predestined. That obviously seems reasonable. It seems fair. But there's another view of a reformed view. They hold that the, they can call it the doctrines of grace, most commonly called Calvinism, that says, no, that's not what happened. They would say that, yes, God the Father did elect all those who would be saved from before the world began, before we were ever created, but it literally had nothing to do with all of us. It had nothing to do with anything we would do or anything would we would believe. It was entirely 100% him. Our will did not play a choice in it at all. Obviously, that's a much harder, more difficult view to see and to understand. Now, just because it's harder to understand doesn't make it true. Um, but when you read through the scriptures, when you read through this chapter, you can see where they come up with that. Now, maybe one and a half percent of all Christians in the world hold this view, this type of, of Calvinist reform view, this doctrine of election from this perspective. Um, obviously, it doesn't seem fair. So if you have four children, um, they accept the fact that God may, may choose one of them, two of them, three of them, or none of them. Um, and if he hasn't chosen them, it makes no difference how much we raise them in Christ, how much we love them. So there are aspects that, that, are, that are just so contrary to anything we understand about fairness in the systematic of Calvinism, in this system or this framework of Reformed theology. It's just, you know, it, it's a very heavy handed thing. I have said that I've studied these doctrines for, for 25 years fairly intensely. Hopefully, I've articulated the two sides, um, you know, in a way that you can grasp it and understand it. As I said to my son-in-law, Nathan, you know, there could be a time where we'll do a 10 teaching series. We could do five hours easy on explaining the doctrines of election and predestination. Um, so hopefully you have a foundation in that now. Um, I, after 25 years... Again, I'm certain about all the things that the Bible is adamant and clear about, and that's about 99%. This happens to be that 1% that, you know, I believe there is a chance that Calvinism is true just simply based on the reading of the scripture. I think it's more likely that provisionism is true, okay? Um, a Calvinist does not believe that at the cross, provision was made for all humanity. They believe that provision was made only for the elect. Um, and again, they do have, they do have, you know, substantial scripture to back that up. There is more scripture. There's substantially more scripture in the Bible that points to we do have a will, and that will is considered in our repentance, our acknowledgement of our sin, and our receiving Christ. And so I'm going to keep studying, and uh, if by his mercy, the Lord, uh, the Lord reveals to me, which and if I become more and more certain, I'm not certain, 
For the most part, it would seem that that unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you see it, there's such a dogma on both sides. There is there, the, the Calvinists are the most dogmatic in certain people. OK, and their dogma, I think, is is over the top in this because the scripture is not absolutely clear. But then at the same time, there are the, the provisionists, the Arminians that, uh, that that are equally dogmatic on the other side. And again, it's important we be dogmatic and certain on the essentials. Election and predestination is not an essential doctrine. What does that mean? It's not essential for salvation. OK, we don't need to understand this properly to be saved, but we do want to understand it more and more and more and more so that we can grow in Christ like we do the other scriptures. Um, but we ought to have a certain humility when it comes to these things. One of these things is true. We can't make up our own meaning. OK, it, it means what it says. So whether the provisionists are correct, the Arminians are correct in this particular doctrine, right? Some are right and some are wrong, okay? Um, and, and almost all other doctrines, the answer is clear. It's 100%. Every single one of us is sinful. The Bible is unambiguous. Every one of us is hopeless, helpless, desperate, and headed to hell, which is a real place. We all deserve hell. Every one of us needs the mercy of our Heavenly Father sent in God the Son, Jesus Christ, and Every single one of us, right, is, is, is spiritually dead, without life, no relationship or, or way to comprehend God. And it's only in Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven of our sins, have relationship with our Heavenly Father, and ultimately go to heaven when we die. In John 14, 6, Jesus unambiguously states, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So again, that scripture is unambiguous. It's clear. It's not confusing. It's not nebulous. It's obvious, Corinne, right? Um, where again, this chapter is a little harder. So we're going to do uh, 25 to 33 today, Lord willing. All right, Romans 9, 25. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And... It will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And that's a, that's a quote. These scriptures are quoted. That's from Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28. Uh, and that, that rock is Jesus. Um, 
See, I lay in Zion, verse 33, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Again, we stumble over the stone of Jesus because we're trying to be made right with God in our own goodness, in our own efforts. We're trying to live a good life. We should try to live a good and proper and holy life, but it has nothing to do with our salvation. We do that because of the mercy our Heavenly Father has shown us, but it doesn't help say it, save us. So when you look at 33, when Paul says, as, is, as, as it is written in Isaiah, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So, so most people stumble over Jesus. They don't see their need of Jesus. They're blind, and so they trip over Jesus. But the one who trusts in Jesus, who is our only rock, our only foundation, we won't be put to shame. We won't have to suffer the shame of our own sin. You see that, May? That's, that's, that's solid, right? Golly, thank you, Lord Jesus. All right, so again, Paul is now moving back to Israel. And again, there are scholars because chapters 9, 10, and 11 deal so much, you know, the vast majority of chapters 9, 10, and 11 do deal with Israel. There are scholars that, that vehemently believe, and these are more provisionist, non-Calvinist non scholars. Um, we all know that it's dealing primarily with Israel, but they believe it only is applying to Israel in the Old Covenant in the way God dealt with his people in the Old Testament. They're not making application to us in the new covenant. Um, and again, the, the, the reason we have the scripture, I don't, ex I don't accept that. Um, it, you know, you know, perhaps there's a possibility that that's right, but then what does this have for any of us? You know, then we're just reading this as a history of how God was dealing with Israel. What's the application for us? That's why we have the Bible. The reason we have the scriptures is not just to read about what happened to people 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, and even 6,000 years ago, right? When God created humanity. Um, that's, that's not why we have the Bible. The Bible, we don't, we're not just to be taught about the Bible. We take it, we understand its meaning, we, we, we grasp what the author meant for the purpose of applying it to our own lives. And so that's how we have to labor to take the scriptures. All right. So, you know, um, you know, Paul now, again, going back and referencing Israel in, in verse 25, he says, as he says, as he says in Hosea, right? And this is God the Father. I will call them, quote, my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And that's Hosea 2.23. And he's speaking here about the Gentiles, okay? And Paul said in verse 24, um, even us, and he's talking about those who God has shown mercy, whom he has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And now Paul's going to prove by the Old Testament. So it's important we see here, right, Pop? When you see this, Becky, when you look at this rap, do you see how Paul is using the scriptures to prove his point? The scriptures are the truth, um, unfortunately, the vast majority of us, even as Christians, we, we don't want the truth. We, I, I tell my guys all the time, and I have to focus on it, we care more about being right 
then what's right? Father, forgive me. I have consistently failed in this. We all fail in it. The vast majority of people do not want truth. They're, they're more concerned about being right than they are about what's right, which is what's the truth. And the truth is the word of God. So notice here that he's pointing to the living word of God to verify that God has shown mercy to not just Jews, verse 24, Romans 9, but also to Gentiles, verse 25, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, non-Jews, Gentiles, who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one, again, Gentiles, who is not my loved one. Israel was his original people and his original loved one, but even in the Old Testament here in Hosea, the prophet cries out that, that, that God would save the Gentiles through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 26, and it will happen that in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. That's Hosea 1.10. So again, the Gentiles were not the chosen people of God. And now Paul quotes Hosea again, verse 26, and it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And again, there's that reference again that we are sons and daughters. It's good for us to remember that on this Father's Day. Again, he's speaking about non-Jews here. Remember, in the scriptures, everyone, every human being is either Jewish, right? They're, they're, you know, their nationality is Jewish from Israel, um, you know, or their heritage is from Israel, right? So, you know, your ancestors could be from Israel and you'd be Jewish. But if you're not Jewish, you're Gentiles, okay? Everyone biblically, who's e you're either Jews or you're Gentiles. And where these people, again, and obviously the vast majority, the 99.999% of the church right now are, are, are non-Jewish people. There are those Jewish people who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And every single one of them needs to receive Jesus. Every Jewish person and every Gentile needs Jesus to avoid an eternity separated from the triune God in hell. Um, but, you know, regrettably, the majority have of Jews have rejected the gospel, have rejected Christ as their Messiah. Um, but the scripture is going to tell us as we move into chapter 11 that ultimately there'll be a time when there'll be a, a just a, a massive reception of the Jews, of the Jewish people in receiving Christ. And Lord Jesus, I pray that happens this day. Have mercy, Lord Jesus. All right, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So we just read in Hosea that, that God is going to show mercy to the Gentiles. But now he's going to discuss Israel. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Again, only a small number. In Paul's day, a tiny number of people were saved. Now, you remember, and you know, if you go back in the beginning of this chapter, Paul was willing to be damned to hell out of his tremendous love for his fellow countrymen, for the men and women of Israel who had almost all rejected Christ except for the very few we see in the scriptures, right? Um, it's, you know, 
And, and so here, you know, the Lord says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Only a small number will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Um, and that's in uh, Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. And so the Lord is going to bring judgment. Now, again, these are hard verses from a Calvinist view, because this, this would be saying that God only chose a small number of those Jewish people from Israel to be saved. God himself made the choice to only have mercy and save a very small number of Jewish people. Let all the rest be condemned to hell where, where all of us deserve to go, but he's only going to show mercy on these very few Israelites. But then he's going to show mercy on, on literally hundreds of millions of, of Gentiles. Like the mass people who are not Jewish, he's going to choose the vast majority of them. And, you know, and, and again, in a Calvinist view, he's just doing that not based on anything that has anything to do with us or our belief. And that's, again, that's just hard to grasp. When it says only the remnant will be saved, when we get down to 30, Paul's going to explain why. The reason that only the remnant are going to be saved is because they rejected Christ. So it's not because that they weren't elect by God. The reason they weren't elect is because they've rejected Christ. And that's what a provisionist would say or an Arminian would say. Um, but again, uh, a Calvinist would say no. So again, a, a Calvinist has to struggle with these verses. Um Again, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. Why? For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. The Lord is going to bring judgment. 29, it is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. That's Isaiah 1.9. So again, the Lord had shown tremendous mercy there would have been almost none if not for the Lord's mercy, right? But now here in 30 to 33, Paul is going to give reasons for that. And, and, and as I said, this these are difficult verses for the reform view. Look what he says in verse 30. What then shall we say? Paul says, what shall we say in response to this? What's the reason for all this? What then shall we say, verse 30, that the Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish, Jewish, who did not pursue righteousness, have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. So the Gentiles, right, those who were not of Israel, did not pursue a righteousness based on the law. The Jews were given this incredible law from Moses, but it wasn't given to save them. It couldn't save them. The reason that the law was given, the Ten Commandments and all the law, was to show us how desperately sinful we are that we can't do what the Lord has told us to do fully and completely. And it was to point us to our need of a savior. We were supposed to look into this book of the law and read it and say, Father, I have failed. I can't do it. As much as I try, I failed. Help me, save me. And he promised the savior would come to save us from our sin because we could not keep the law. We could be saved if we could perfectly keep the law, but no human being could do it. One did it, the God-man Jesus. He 
obeyed every aspect of the law of God perfectly in thought, word, and deed. He actually did it on our behalf and in our place. And when we receive Christ, that perfect righteous life that he lived is actually credited to us. And in return, all of our sin, past, present, and future is credited to him. Wow. Let that sit. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> Father, that's good. Man, that's just exciting, sweetheart. That's for my wife, May. My sweet daughter, Lauren. My daughter, my daughter, Kristen. That's, that's good stuff. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue a righteousness have obtained it a righteousness a righteousness that is by faith. We've been made right with God by our faith in Jesus Christ. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Verse 32, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So you see, now Paul gives the reason here. Why was Israel not elect? Okay, now again, a Calvinist does, you know, they can't deny the verses, but they don't point to this as reasoning where a provisionist or an Arminian would say there's clear reasoning here. Okay. What then shall we say? Why, why did God go about it all in this way? Why did he say, I'll have mercy on whom I am have mercy? Well, you know, he says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I don't have compassion. But what's the reason for it? What then shall we say? What's God's reasoning behind this? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. You can only be made right with God, not in your own good works, not in your efforts, not in trying to do good, but abandoning all of that and desperately throwing yourself at the foot of the cross and by faith receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. John 1.12, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God our Father. Wow. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Why not? Here's the reason. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Israel rejected Christ, and in their own pride, and people do this every day, they are trying to earn their way to heaven. They won't humble themselves and say, I'm a hopeless, desperate sinner. There's nothing I can do that can bring me to heaven. There's nothing I can do that'll help me to get to heaven. I need you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. That's why Jesus came. He was tortured on the cross because we needed it. If we could earn our way to heaven, Jesus would have died in vain. All God becoming a man and being tortured for us wouldn't be necessary if we could get there ourselves, right? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So here's the reason why only a remnant will be saved, right? Because, you know, they, they, they chose not to humble themselves and receive Christ by faith, but to continue to try to put their resume up before God and say, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. Now, again, of course, we should live good lives. Of course, we should do good. But we none of that helps us to be saved. We do that because we love our Father. We love Jesus. We love the Holy Spirit for all they did for us in salvation. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, and we already did 33. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone, that stone is Jesus, that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him, Jesus, will never be put to shame. Are you trusting in Jesus? 
Father, we love you today. We honor you. We praise you. We worship you. We thank you on this Father's Day. Father, I pray that every one of us, every one of us that hears this, that is not certain, would fall on their knees at the foot of the cross and cry out to Jesus, knowing their desperate need of him. Lord, I pray that that all who hear this would not be put to shame in the end, Lord, but that would receive you, that they wouldn't stumble over you, that they wouldn't stumble, Lord, in their pride. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a good, good, good father. We love you today. We honor you. Holy Spirit, seal this message to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.